Uh, today we are taking a look at the work of Michael Parenti. Uh, Michael Parenti, of course, an international uh, scholar, an internationally known scholar. He's the author of uh, some 20 books. Uh, his newest is uh, a reader of sorts titled Contrary Notions, the Michael Parenti Reader. Michael Parenti received his PhD in political science from Yale University. He's taught at a number of colleges and universities in the United States and abroad. Some of his writings have been translated into uh, just about a dozen or so languages. He's won awards from Project Censored, the Caucus for a New Political Science, uh, the City of Santa Cruz, New Jersey Peace Action, the Social Science Research Council, etc., etc., etc. He now serves on the Board of Judges for Project Censored and on the advisory boards of Independent Progressive Politics Network, Education Without Borders, and the uh, Jasenovic Foundation, as well as the ad- advisory editorial boards of New Political Science and Nature, Science, uh, Nature Society and Thought, uh, Michael Parenti joins us this morning. Good morning. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you uh, so much for, for joining us. You've got quite a, a biography. It's, uh, it's a little hard to, to squeeze all of your accomplishments in there. So, uh, but uh, thank you for joining us. How are, uh, how's the weather up in Berkeley this morning? I haven't been out yet. It's uh, very early here, 8 o'clock, and uh, it looks okay, I guess. Well, thank you for joining us early in the morning. I know you said you're not necessarily at 100%, but uh, I want to begin by asking about uh, a way you describe yourself, or maybe it's a way that the the publisher, uh, City Lights, describes you, but uh, you're described as being a recovering uh, academic. And uh, I was wondering if you can explain to our listeners a bit about uh, your background, as you're not presently affiliated with, uh, with academia, and I think that that's really important in um, framing a lot of your work. I, um, I found that when I got involved or active in controversial issues, that my career opportunities began to lessen and uh, I began to be uh, treated as um, a dangerous person that uh, uh, academia, while it talks a lot about academic freedom, about um, pluralistic society and all that, academia was riddled with orthodoxies of all sorts and that there really wasn't all that much tolerance for dissident views, especially if the, if the dissidents came from the left, you know. So um, I found that while I published a lot and was considered a very good teacher, that the more I engaged in, in dissent or you like opposing the Vietnam War, but not just speaking against it, but acting and mobilizing and that uh, my career opportunities lessened <clears throat> and the mechanisms of repression went into went into full gear. And uh, so what I ended up doing is just devoting full time to writing and, and being a guest lecturer at different places, you know. And ironically, now universities pay you to come and lecture back at the very institutions that shunned you. Sometimes that's true. Yeah, that that is quite true. Like the University of Vermont, where 
Well, I must say, in fairness, though, to a lot of the universities, that at times the, the reactionism was not from the faculty or even sometimes from the administrators. Usually it was the administrators. Uh, you don't get to be a dean or vice president or president of a university unless you play ball, go along with the powers that be. But the, the, the real source of reactionary power is the board of trustees. The universities are um, corporations. Yeah, let's explore that because I, f- I found that a, a really interesting and, and kind of right on the money uh, assessment. Uh, you write that uh, universities are corporations and you go into su- su- uh, such depth as to who actually runs them. So if you could elaborate on that. Well, um, the, all the decisions made in the university are made by its board of directors, or, or in the university they're, they're called board of regions, or um, what's the other phrase for them? Trustees. Um, but um, as with any business, uh, the power is in, in the hands of the incorporated trustees of the corporation. They decide what courses can be taught or not taught. They decide, um, you know, what can be in the curriculum, whether someone's contract is going to be renewed. My contract at one university, I remember, was supported. The renewal of my contract was unanimously supported by my department, by all the deans, by the president, the provost, the vice president, but the Board of Trustees in a 15 to 4 vote um, ruled, overruled all of them, and I was, that was the end of my career at that school, at the University of Vermont. And uh, so that's typically the way, the way it goes. Uh, it's, and more and more, of course, increasingly, it's mimicking a corporation. Even the state, the public universities now, the amount of tuition that students need to attend school is outrageous. Um, the salaries uh, that are handed out to the top administrators and such are, are begin to mimic uh, private corporations and the lavish perks that they enjoy. Um, and the corporations are invited in to actually finance, directly finance research. And so you get research in agribusiness uh, and, you know, agricultural schools and universities that completely reflect the interests and perspective of agribusiness, pharmaceuticals, uh, and so forth. Which is exactly. By the way, what we're talking about is just one or two articles in the book. Yes, and we'll we'll definitely get to the the bigger and broader themes. I want to remind listeners they're in KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Michael Parenti. You could check out his website at Michael Parenti. That's P A R E N T I dot org. And we're talking about uh, his uh, one of his newest books because it's hard to keep track of all of them. But it's titled uh, Contrary Notions: The Michael Parenti Reader. It's uh, available at City Lights Books. Uh, you know, is there a bit of naivete amongst uh, whether it's progressives or just the the general public into thinking that uh, the Norman Finkelsteins or the Ward Churchills or this the, the David Horowitz kind of campaigns, Campus Watch of today, is something recent? Have we forgotten 
that the uh, exclusion of contrary voices in uh, not only the media but in universities uh, goes back to about, uh, you know, just after the Civil War during Reconstruction. Oh, yes. I mean, universities have always been purging their dissidents, you know, back right into the 19th century and even the 18th century. I mean, in, in those days, the uh, the rulers were deacons and clergy. It's true, but, uh, you know... Uh, uh, there have been cases all through it. In, in the 20th century, we had some very dramatic cases. E.A. Ross, uh, um, variety of variety of cases. That, but as, as I said, this early this early in the morning, I can't really remember them all. But well, let's let's take this theme of exclusion and Scott Nearing was one of yeah. Yeah. Let's take the theme of exclusion and uh, and kind of open up the discussion a bit. Uh, in uh, contrary notions, I mean, it's it's filled. Uh, you know, universities is only uh, about five pages of uh, this really extensive uh, volume. Uh, you write that no society of any complexity speaks with one voice. Yet a lot of your scholarship uh, charts the history of uh, democratic and capitalist societies as societies that increasingly uh, exclude uh, contrarian voices, whether it's in the media or elections or universities. Can you, uh, that gives you a lot of latitude, but can you talk about this this trend of uh, contemporary society increasingly speaking with one voice, and what is the nature of that voice? The nature of that voice is that it filters out any perspective which critically exposes the vested interests that run the uh, that run most of the society and control the resources of power. So, uh, the media, for instance, are not close to corporate America. They are a real component of corporate America, and it's no accident that people of my opinion and perspective are simply rarely, very rarely allowed on the air. Uh, on mainstream mainstream media, I'm talking about, uh, not on small community radio stations, which are often besieged by the larger corporations and get bought up by them. Uh, I I can get on a small independent community radio, but not on Clear Channel and not on NBC, ABC. I've been throughout my long career on mainstream media maybe three, four times, and usually it's with two conservatives, Robert Novak and one or two of these other guys, uh, screaming at you from both sides, not letting you finish a sentence. Uh, so you're there really just as a foil, you know, to be kicked around. So that's the media. Take, for instance, the um, discourse on war. Um, the war of Vietnam, uh, where there was massive opposition to that war, how much of that opposition actually got a voice in the media? Now, today, where 70, more than 70% of the people say the war in Iraq is, uh, is, not, is not a desirable situation and it should be resolved, um, the debate in both of those wars back in the 60s and today, the debate was was limited between those who said we could win the war 
and those who said we could not win the war. But those of us who said we should not win or lose, we should not have been in that war and we shouldn't be in it, that the war did not defend the interests of the American people or of the Iraqi people or Vietnamese people, that the war was pursued for interests that had nothing to do with democracy and humanitarianism and that sort of thing. Those of us who said that uh, never really got um, never really got much time to speak of or any at all. So if you're confining your argument about a war purely on operational and instrumental grounds, you know that, well, I, I oppose this war because we're not winning, um, then you really are, you oppose the war, you really support the war. You say, I support this war. I support the idea of going in. I support it. But it didn't go right, and it's too costly now, so let's get out. So the debate is between those who support the war and those who support the war, except it's not working, so I want to get out. So that's how limited what, what and I think I call, uh, there are uh, several articles in the book on the media. I think the book opens up with some selections of mine on the media. That's called false balancing, you know, and the appearance of a plurality of opinion, when it's, which is just an appearance. Well, let's explore that because one of my favorite sections uh, takes a look. I thought we just did explore. Well, let's that. let's explore it a little bit more. Yeah, uh, okay. One of the uh, one of the things that I found interesting uh, is this this notion of of balance or this notion of uh, the categorization of opinion. So you mentioned that uh, on those rare occasions when you have been uh, in the media. Uh, it's been on, you know, Crossfire or one of those shows where ostensibly they've got someone from the left and someone from the right. You do a good job in Contrary Notions of kind of deconstructing uh, conservatives, liberals, and then you talk about the extreme center. And I was wondering if you could explain to listeners about that, because I think that that's really important when we're talking about balance. That's a selection of mine. Uh, it's about it's about the political spectrum that you have, right and left, and then you have the center, and the center is assumed to be moderate, and uh, but you can be in the center in your politics, but but be pursuing very extreme and drastic uh, positions. Uh, so um, that's what I mean by extreme moderate. The extremes, your right wing or left wing, and you can go extremely left and extremely right on a, on a spectrum, you know, you can extend both ends of it, but the center is just the center. And so what's mistaken is a, a placement in the, in the range of political opinion is taken as a moral placement also. That, well, you're a moderate if you're in the center. Well, that's not true. There were people in the center like... Arthur Schlesinger and um, all those all those people in the Johnson and Kennedy administrations who were hawks who were pursuing extreme and terrible wars. I mean, some of them flipped and switched over after a while, but um, so they can pursue. You had a centrist president of the United States uh, in America, Harry Truman, who dropped an atomic bomb. So being in the center is just a spatial metaphor on the political spectrum. It doesn't mean you're moderate, really. You can be pursuing very immoderate 
and extreme um, actions. So I talk about the extreme moderates um, and how, how they are extremists in many ways. See, I, I've, I've been called an extremist, and I say, well, I, I don't think I am. I mean, what do I want? A clean environment, um, a military budget that isn't eating away all our domestic funding for, for hospitals and schools and, and, and human services, um, so greatly diminished military budget. Uh, I think those are very moderate things. But, of course, in that spectrum... In the universe of discourse that's allowed, that's seen as very drastic and extreme. I don't want us pursuing wars that are in violation of uh, international law and humanitarian rights and such. Um, I don't want leaders who play on panicky fears to get the American people to rally around them and wrap the American flag around them. And uh, You see, once you convince the people that their security... Their survival depends on pursuing your policies. They will, they'll do anything you want. They'll go fight and send troops off to areas and nations whose existence they never even knew about uh, just a, a month before, who, whose, whose existence they couldn't find on a map. But they'll go and they'll fight. And once you tell them that there's this wicked enemy, Saddam Hussein or Noriega or Milosevic or... Um, or any number of uh, the New Jewel movement in Grenada, or, or Gaddafi, or, or any of the, the Gaddafi, right? Or uh, uh, anybody, anybody like that. Uh, you can be sure once they're convinced, you demonize the leader, and that then that gives you that gives you license to go and bomb their people, and you're doing all this to keep um, to keep you folks safe, you and your children, and all that safe from these wicked wicked aggrandizers and such. And of course, when you compare yourself to the Adolf Hitlers of the world, you can't help but appear moderate. You know, it's, we had Norman Solomon on uh, last year when uh, his uh, new documentary, uh, War Made Easy, came out. And, you know, we played the little clip of uh, presidents uh, constantly referring to, you know, our boogeyman du jour as uh, a contemporary of Hitler. And of course, if you compare your policy to that of Hitler's, you're always going to appear centrist or moderate. You meaning... You mean meaning the, the United States. U.S. leaders. Exactly. You keep saying you. I yeah, I'm sorry. That. It's a right. little early. It's, I, I'm in the same time zone, my friend, so... Um, <laughs> but it's... it's yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I've... I think in, in the book I make that... I point that out. Every single one of these leaders have been compared to Hitler. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're talking with Michael Parenti. And by the way, it's not because our leaders are crazy or stupid or misguided. That's a theme that, that runs through the book, that it's not stupidity and blunder and the like, that these, these policies are pursued because they favor this very real interests at the expense of other interests. We're speaking with Michael Parenti. His uh, newest collection is uh, Contrary Notions. It's available at City Lights. You could also check it out at michaelparenti.org. Uh, how did you put together this uh, this book? Are these original pieces? I couldn't see in the front if these were, if this is a, a compilation or if this is a reworking of earlier pieces. Um, what are the sources, and then how did you decide on all the different themes? It must have been quite an undertaking. 
Yeah, well, you, you just said it. Yes, it, indeed. It was um, it was kind of hard to make selections and such, but um, uh, it turned out to be turned out to be pretty well, a lot of fun. Most of these selections have appeared earlier, but we didn't cite the various publications because I redid so many of them. I updated them and changed things and uh, and and the like. So. Uh, there are there are a few that are completely original to the book uh, and ha- have not appeared anywhere else. A lot of them are articles um, that have gotten a lot of um, attention, so I put them in. Um, <clears throat> the one article called um, "Are Heterosexuals Worthy of Marriage," which is about you know they was talking about gays should be mar- shouldn't marry and all that. I said, well, what about heterosexuals? Look, look, look how we've treated marriage, you know, battered wives, bartered wives, um, concubine wives, and, and this and that and so forth. And went, went through a, I just went through a rough, quick sketch of marriage. I mean, that, that was an article that had gotten some attention, so I, I put it in, and I, I tried to go for some of the diversity of things, but uh, the article on um, how... Um, how the free market killed New Orleans and how New Orleans was not mismanaged but was deliberately mistreated. That that piece got translated into several languages and and was bouncing all over the internet, so I, I, I included that and but there were, <clears throat> excuse me. There are also selections from <clears throat> some books of mine um, which might escape the reader's attention, which I thought were, you know, a selection portion of a chapter or or better part of a chapter reworked in certain ways so that it stood by itself, you know, and could be of interest to the reader. One of the things that I'm so struck by in, in your, your writings is how accessible you make what are otherwise uh, seemingly complex topics if, if one listens to the pundits or turns to the books on university presses. Um, is that a difficult thing for you to do, or does it just come naturally and you think that there's, you know, there's deliberate obfuscation? I mean, one of my favorite parts of, of Contrary Notions is when you talk about uh, Alan Sokol and the, the, the Sokol experiment, all of the, the books on that... Uh, that farce of a journal article are some of my favorite books. Maybe uh, could you tell our listeners a bit about that background and how you try to avoid all of those uh, that jargon? Is it is it a, a a long process or does it just come naturally? Alan Sokol, could you jog my memory a bit? What what? what yeah, was Alan Sokol was the, uh, the I think he was at NYU, a physicist who submitted uh, a uh, oh yes a gibberish yes, article. Yes. Uh, Sokol published, uh, he sent an article to a journal which was put out by Stanley Aronowitz uh, who, and, and a number of other leftists. Um, I think it's called Cultural Text? Social, social Text. Social Text, yeah. And Social Text um, specializes in articles that are just uh, impenetrable and unreadable. They're just written in this heavenly, pounding, jargonized style but supposedly from a progressive point of view, hair-splitting, hyper-theorized, self-referencing. So Alan Sokol wrote one of those articles, totally fabricated, totally a total parody and a farce, but he cited people like, you know, 
Derrida and Foucault and all the latest. Deleuze and Guattari and Kristeva. I mean, just all of the. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and they, they really do beat the fashion industry in terms of what's the latest a la mode and the, uh, or du jour, as you said before, you know, the, the issue of du jour and, and, and the latest uh, phrases to be used, postmodern, uh, existential, this, that, the other thing. And he wrote this article, which was purely fabricated, and sent it, and they published it. And he, he then went public and said, this is a total farce. This is a total, uh, you know, this, this is a total parody. I, none of this is based on any kind of serious, serious reflection or thought. Um, I was, in other words, I was kidding. I don't even know what I was saying in some of those sentences. And... Um, so that really exposed the fact that these people really don't know what they're saying. What they're busy doing is trying to get off their esoteric smarts and trying to display their smarts and mistaking mistaking obfuscation for profundity. They say, but there's a difference between profundity being obscure and dense, which is the way academics are taught to write. And I had to unteach myself to write that way. But to, to be clear does not mean you're, you're being simple or simple-minded. To be clear means you're, you're clear, but, but you, may be, you may be, you know, parsing out and deconstructing very complex issues, but you, but you want to, should, they, they should be accessible to people. And, well, and that was, uh, I mean, I've read a couple of books that, uh, that uh, Professor Sokol has, uh, has written since that, that uh, that farce, and uh, that was really his criticism, was that he considers himself a progressive, and he found that a lot of the stuff was just pure nonsense, and that which wasn't nonsense was so inaccessible to the audience that uh, the work was ostensibly trying to uh, to elevate, to to uh, liberate, if you will, and he really wanted to expose the the nonsense of academics working uh, within progressive circles and uh it is to your credit that your work is so accessible i i picked up contrary notions just a few days ago and i saw the length of it and i thought oh boy it's going to be i mean it's going to be a rush for me to finish it by thursday but not not at all so what is it about 340 pages 320 or something yeah it's all it's uh, 370 pages so it's it's a good uh i talk too much (laughs) it's a good piece but uh we're speaking with my Michael Parenti, his uh, one well, of his. What, did you manage to read some of? Uh, I some of it. got through about two thirds of it, so uh, it's it's quite a quite an interesting read and uh, very very accessible. So I recommend that that readers uh, listeners pick it up. I do want to ask uh, real briefly about another book and then give you an opportunity to maybe just give a preview without giving away all the secrets of your talk at Cal State Fullerton this Monday. But if one looks at your list of recent books, there seems to be uh, a break. You talk about uh, democracy for the few and you talk about terrorism and September 11th and super patriotism. And then right smack dab in the middle is the assassination of Julius Caesar, which uh, you subtitle A People's History of Ancient Rome. Uh, why that book and why at that time? Oh, uh, it just was a very fascinating issue. It's about the story of the late Republic of Rome, which uh, ended when Caesar was murdered by the Senate aristocrats. 
And I realized here was a very interesting incident in history, intriguing incident, which has been misrepresented by historians of that day and all the way down. And that if you read Cicero's uh, private letters and such, you, you get a better sense of what the motives were that these people, as he said, we've killed Caesar, but the things that make us hate him are still in place. Namely, they killed Caesar not because he was trying to usurp the republic. That's the way it's always presented. And these Senate aristocrats wanted to defend their beloved republic. No, they didn't care about the republic. They cared about their own interests. And the thing about Caesar was that he was actually making popular reforms. He was indulging in debt cancellation, uh, rent Rent, uh, rent suspension of rent payments, um, uh, work, job projects, and the like, and and therefore he got killed the way any number of popular leaders over the century before him, beginning with the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius Gracchi and and, and, and Gaius Gracchi. So so the, that the book is about is about the dirty Roman intrigues and politics and the struggle of popular forces to try to have some slice of democracy and some and some um, some you know some fair deal for themselves and I point out that democracy is a wonderful invention by the people of history to defend themselves against uh, against the abuses of wealth hmm. Well, you will be appearing at Cal State Fullerton uh, this Monday, which is April 14th. You'll be at the uh, the Titan Student Union. And uh, without giving away too much, you were just mentioning democracy. The name of your talk is billed as uh, Democracy, Labor, and the Prosperity Myth. Can you give uh, listeners just a little uh, teaser of what you'll be discussing? I'll be discussing democracy, labor, and, uh, yeah, um, well, I'll talk about what democracy really is, that democracy is not a creation of modern capitalist society, that democracy is created despite uh, a capitalist system. The capitalists always opposed it, that labor, which we think of as just a special interest, is, as it's portrayed in, 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 in media programs like like Fox uh, propagandists and, and those people. Labor is not just a special interest, but it's a, a key and core component of democracy. And um, and that um, and that when democracy is in retreat, our prosperity is taken from us. Furthermore, the myth that America is a is a great prosperous country will be explored a bit more. And I'll talk about the very tenuous nature of, and the very recent nature of that prosperity, that through much of its history, large portions of the population in the United States really lived at third world standards, and today they're slipping back into into that, uh, with with democracy in retreat and plutocracy winning. That's what the talk's about. And that is this Monday, April 14th at 7 p.m. at Cal State Fullerton in the uh, Titan Student Union. And uh, the new book is Contrary Notions. It is available at City Lights Books, or you can log on to michaelparenti.org. And Parenti is spelled P-A-R-E-N-T-I. Michael Parenti, uh, enjoy your morning and uh, get some coffee. And I look forward to hearing your talk on Monday.
Thank you. Thank you very much for a nice interview. <laughs>